You're listening to the Race to the Racer podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a vintage-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting to motorsports today. Check out race92.com for all your racing merchandise needs. I'm your co-host, Aaron Macti. Other co-host may have seen walking out of Barber Lounge 459 with a big old smile on his face. May have seen him at a dirt track. He is Scott Bowie. Hey, Aaron. What's going on? Not a whole lot. Um, just, uh, just another, another week and, um, yeah, another, another month closer to May, right? May will be here before you know it. Yep. April's almost here. Racing season started, uh, 12 hours Sebring. Yeah. Ran over the weekend. Wow. Last hour of that race was pretty, uh, hectic. Uh, David land had, uh, Really good coverage of it. So anybody wants to see any of that, go over to David Land's channel. Um, and uh, what else? What else happened this weekend? NASCAR. Uh, Joy Logano won in the Cup race. Um, Brian uh, Brad Kazowski almost got a win, which I mean, he's uh, slowly but surely has turned that team around. So, uh, good for him. Uh, he lost, looked to me like he lost late in the race, maybe the last lap. Um, Austin Hill won again in Xfinity. Jeez, man. Like he's like, like he's on a pace to win like 18 races or something like that this year. Some insane number, which obviously is not going to happen, but, um, man, he's had a heck of a start to the year. Yeah, and I think we got to talk a little bit about that Xfinity race. Um, and I forget. Let me let me see. Hold on, I got it. I got to get the name right. Well, he went jo- to Josh Jill. Williams. Josh yeah. Williams. I don't know exactly what happened, uh, but he got in trouble. Basically, they they were trying to fix the car. They put him back out. Piece of bear bond comes off of it, causes another yellow, to which NASCAR decides they're going to enforce one of their rules that they barely enforce anymore. And, and I'm not sure what happened after that. Well, they tell him to park it basically. And that's exactly, that's exactly what he did. <laughs> I mean, that's what he did. Well, I mean, where do you park it at? Was it on pit lane or was it on track? No, it was on the track at the start finish line in the middle of the track on the start finish line. Well, he's going to get some trouble for that. Oh, I'm sure that that's uh, for anybody who thinks they can challenge NASCAR and not uh, have repercussions there is a a history of some of the world's most famous uh, nascar drivers who have learned the hard way that that never works so but hey it's it's good for the fans it's funny yeah yeah he just parked it right there the start finish line it was near the bottom near the apron but it was basically right on the track there and yeah, he, was, he was out on the, the way. banking <laughs> on the banking yeah and he just got out of the car with his helmet just walked across infield wow. going home going home for the day from work yeah, right. I think he, uh, I think he got directed into the hauler uh, before he could get in the car and drive home. Well, no, you know what's funny is like the people that were coming up to him, I were like NASCAR people. I thought you know he was going to get in trouble, but they were actually coming up to him saying he needed to go to the infield care center because he was involved in yellow. So they were more <laughs> worried about that at that point, which is good, I guess. But yeah, it's kind of funny. That's funny. Um. What else happened this weekend? 
Formula oh, One, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia one. GP, and um, I did watch the majority of it. Fernando Alonso, um, impressing once again with a third place. So another podium, third in the points. Great to see. Yeah. I like Fernando. I, I mean, anyone who's going to come over the Indy 500 like that and, and did what he – I mean, he's he's a racer, right? So, um, you know, 41 years old and still competitive. Well, the crazy part is, is you know, people were, had written, absolutely written him off. Yeah, as a race car driver, and uh, and I did make the comment one time to someone on social media uh, a long time ago. I said, "Hey, I said if they if somebody's willing to back the Brinks truck up, he'll go back and run." Oh yeah, and uh, that's exactly what happened. And I mean, he had good success at Alpine, and man, he is looking great uh right now i mean it's, it's good just... to see because he definitely had some rough rough years um and it's a it's good i mean someone in his caliber obviously you know sometimes i think people like you said when a, a driver like that has a couple bad years like oh he's lost it no right. he didn't lose it he's just not any equipment that can get it done well i mean so you know what's that say about what's going on mclaren yeah, McLaren's uh, really – they had some issues in the race. Um, I mean, they were not good today. No. And they were so-so last year. Yeah. The year before that, they were they were more competitive. I, I will say they were more competitive the year before that. But, man, I I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, well, the good news I mean, is bottom good. line is they got to pick it up. I don't care. You are McLaren. You are – one of the world's greatest racing organizations you got to start acting like it and right now they're not the good news is that they ever feel like their drivers you know aren't meeting the quota they definitely they definitely have plenty of other drivers yeah they they can definitely put so they can they definitely got uh drivers they can put in the cockpit that's for sure um and maybe that's part of their problem maybe they're just getting too big I mean, they're getting involved in all these forms of motorsports. I mean, I, I wouldn't think it would have a direct, you know, correlation with their Formula One team, but you never know, right? Yeah, you don't know. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I I don't know what's going on there, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm just saying that when you are one of the world's greatest racing teams, at some point you got to start acting like it, and right now they're not. Um I mean, I guess you could say the same thing for Mercedes, although Mercedes is running in the top six. Ferrari's running in the top six in an ultra-competitive series. So, um, you know, they're not where they want to be, but they're competitive each week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but certainly you got to hand it to Sergio Perez. Wins another one. Uh, really wasn't even close. Um, uh, Verstappen obviously second. Uh, Lonzo was third. Well, Verstappen had the gear, I think it was the gearbox issue that ended him yeah. out of the, um, the long qualifying session, so he started like 15th. Um, right, so, still pretty impressive. But obviously, he oh, moved, absolutely, he moved, he moved up pretty quick. Obviously, he's got the fastest car, but um, right. Um, yeah. you know, uh, the, the funny part with Orlando, uh, Orlando, Alonzo was uh, you know, they had the five second penalty for the the grid violation. Yeah. And they served it under the yellow. And then he got the 10 second after the race that put him fourth, but then he rescinded the 10 second. 
and moved him back to third. So who knows, man? Yeah, no, you never know with <laughs> with that. Um, but other than that, um, we have IndyCar Texas coming up. Is that that's this week or the next week? Uh, I'm not sure which. I yeah. am so screwed up on my. Dates I am too. Right now. It's coming up, and then after that, we have Barber. Um, and then yeah, I mean, and then we'll be we'll be in May before we know it. Yeah, Indy next. Well, you got Long Beach as well. Long Beach, Long yeah. Beach. Um, you know, Indy next has a tested speedway uh, in two weeks. Um, you know, that'll be interesting. Man, that's a competitive field. I went back and watched uh, some of the race from uh, St. Pete, and wow, it. I mean, nineteen cars, and there's probably fifteen drivers, fourteen drivers mm-hmm. that can get it done. And there's, there's actually, there, I mean, there's probably 17 cars that can get it done and probably 14 drivers can get it done. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but, you know, other than that, like this, the guest this week we're releasing is Brian Till. And, um, you know, we talked about Brian a little bit before, but Brian, um, great guy and very, yeah. you know, I, I definitely enjoyed enjoy all of our interviews, but um, that's like the disclaimer you have to say, right? I enjoy talking to everyone, but no, I really do. But you know, if if there's a few that would I would say really stand out, I, I would probably say this would be one of them, just because he's just really really good at talking, just very reflective and just honest and realistic. Um, and it just you know he's just very reflective, like just kind of reflecting back about how lucky he was and how fortunate he was to be given the opportunities that he was given. Um, and it was just really cool, really, really cool interview. And, um, I mean, he is a professional at speaking, I guess you can say, because he's been doing TV for quite some time. So those guys are always, you know, pretty easy to talk to and, um, just really good interview. Um, but you know, Brian's a great guy. And it was, like I said, it was just really good, really good one. Yeah. I can't agree more. That, that was, that was really, really good. Um, yeah. I mean, that's all you can say about it. It's just, Really, really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and then I think the next one will probably be Didier Tays um, will release, or we may be doing a McGilvery show, I believe on the tw- Tuesday, the 28th. Um, we'll wait to confirm that when we get closer. Um, but yeah, other than that, um, thanks to Fast Times Indoor Karting, we've been doing a couple more um, of the um Provers joe's video series we just did so the next one i'll be releasing will be um sebastian severity which was um you weren't there for that one scott but that was a really good one um sebastian's been there before so he's obviously pretty quick i mean regardless he's pretty quick but um right. yeah i think everyone will enjoy that and then the one after that won't say who it is yet but it is a current indycar driver you were there for that um Got a little bit of schooling from a, you know, we've we've raced against former IndyCar drivers. They're no, nothing to mess with, but obviously a current IndyCar driver, um, probably a little bit more on their game because they're more fresh and current. And um, yeah, nothing to mess with for sure. No, I mean, um, he was great. The one you did last week was great, yeah. or this past week, uh, with another current uh, current driver. I, obviously, I, we're not not going to give away who it is, but hugely successful in his field and very good at is at fast times so um no that was really good uh really enjoyed that one as well yeah so thanks to fast times for you know letting us do this and um you know hopefully we can 
help promote fast times a lot more once we do more of these and um yeah it's you know really opening the door and we're able to get people that i didn't think we'd be able to get so it's um yeah it's pretty cool i think everyone will enjoy the videos that are that are coming out soon and um other than that it's it's getting you know so it's, it's been cold scott but here here in probably about a month it, you're you're gonna need to switch gears and um thanks to the the good folks uh good guys um you you're covering all bases i am absolutely covered i am incredibly confident going into uh the air conditioning season uh they really um they really come in and did a quick job and did an awesome job for me last year when um, my old unit just finally gave up the ghost. Uh, so the good people, good guys, uh, anybody needs checkups, if they're having issues, please look them up during the Indianapolis area. Um, Ryan and, and the people there do just excellent work. So yeah, no, I, I that is one that is one stressor that I don't have to worry about right now is that. Yeah, as many the less stressors you can have, the better, right? That's right. But um no, other than that, um thanks there. And I will mention so race ninety two, obviously I mentioned that a little bit. We will um definitely stay tuned to race92.com. We're working on a couple things I think um people will be pretty excited about. Um I'm pretty excited about it. So some pretty big things trying to kind of revitalize the brand and have a couple new connections or well, at least one pretty big collection that'll be coming out soon. Um, working on that kind of the back end the next couple of weeks, but yeah, stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, I hope everyone um, has a great week and I hope everyone enjoys uh, Brian Till interview. Take care. Bye. Our guest today drove in the 1994 Indy 500 and is a longtime broadcast. Sorry, let me redo that. Our guest today drove in the 1994 Indy 500 and is a longtime broadcaster for IMSA and other forms of motorsports. We are joined by Brian Till. Brian, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. So I got to be honest, this is our first episode of Cooking with Brian Till. <laughs> Brian, what, what are we making tonight? Well, we're having uh, a spicy spaghetti sauce, so a spicy red sauce, and then I'm going to serve it on both spaghetti and ravioli and no i did not make the ravioli uh, i like this man i like this man a lot but i am making the sauce and that means there's going to be a bottle of red wine that's open here shortly so <laughs> just and i'm not going to tell you how much goes in the sauce and how much goes in the sauce maker but maker. <laughs> that's funny so um obviously you're you're race car driver and also got into broadcasting and we've um interviewed some other people just like you obviously scott goodyear we've had paul page on um so it's great you talking had, to you you had the man on if you had paul page on he's know, like right? the guy uh man i mean paul's just a, as you guys know i mean you talk to him super guy very down to earth very transparent, has some great, great racing and non-racing stories. I don't know if you got into any of the non-racing stories, but. Well, most of them um, are Bobby Unzer stories. Most of them are uh, Bobby Unzer well, stories. <laughs> so, you know, Paul has a military background. I, I, I know we want to talk about racing, but um, he's got a, an interesting military background. Ask him about it next time you bump into him. That's all I'll say. He, like he's, talked, he's talked a little bit about his military <laughs> background with us. So, um, so talk a little bit about how you first got interested in racing. 
Oh man, you know, and I, I say this to young kids all the time. I mean, um, I'm one in a million and I don't mean that as in, I'm a really special guy. <laughs> I mean it as in I won the lottery. I'm never going to win like Powerball because I won it already. Um, nobody in my family raised, I'm from Houston, Texas. Um, and like I said, nobody in my family raised, my father was an attorney and um, he was, he grew up in Appleby, Texas, which no one knows where it is. It's north of, of Houston on the way up to uh, Nacogdoches and stuff like that in East Texas. And he literally, literally grew up in a two room house as an only child, not a two bedroom house, a two room house. Um, and long story short, family moved to Houston, went to high school, got out, went to the Navy, used the GI, GI Bill, paid for college, read light meters at Houston Lighting and Power to pay for law school and, and became a very well-known, uh, very well-respected insurance defense attorney, not only in Houston and in Texas, but throughout the country. So um, he knew nothing about racing, but what he wanted was for us, even though we had a very comfortable living at that point in time, growing up as kids, we weren't growing up in a two-room house. Um, he wanted us to understand where he came from. So we had a farm and we had cows and we had horses and we had a garden and, you know, all that comes with that. So we learned, you know, to grow up the way that he did. We also had a go-kart um, and it was, you know, a five horsepower Briggs and Stratton engine on it. And it had slick tires, but we drove it in the grass because, you know, you drove it around the yard. And I just started kind of thinking that this was really cool. So I drove the go-kart. I would take our big walk behind Yazoo mower and mow racetracks out in pasture. Um, and I finally convinced my dad to buy me a helmet. And I wasn't because I was concerned about going through the barbed wire fences that separated the pastures. <laughs> it was to keep the cow pies out of my face. You know, I, I wanted a helmet <laughs> with a shield on it because I got tired of being strewn, you know, and you, you try to miss the fresh ones, the dried ones weren't a problem, but, um, and so that's where I really kind of fell in love with it by accident. Um, and I never expected to be a professional race car driver. When I was in late in high school, um, met a guy that I played baseball with and um, became one of my very best friends to this day. And his dad raced in the SCCA at the club level. And so Bobby and I started going to the races when we were seniors in high school. And we continued to do that when we were in college. Um, in the summer times, we'd go help his dad at the racetrack on the weekends. And I just always thought, you know, when I graduate from college and I'm making all that money that you make as soon as you graduate from college, I'm going to buy a race car and go racing too. And then my second year of college, I was like, you know, when you're making a decent amount of money, by the time I finally got out, it was like, if I just have a job, I'll buy tickets to a race somewhere. So <laughs> the dream of driving kind of went away. Um, but then I discovered one weekend, my I guess it was my junior year of college. I was driving around town. I was out at the airport actually taking flying lessons. And um, I was a big Formula One fan, big race fan. And I, I knew that all these Formula One drivers got their starts driving go-karts. And I knew kind of a little bit about go-karts. But I was out at the airport on a weekend, which I rarely was. And when, as I was leaving, there's a go-kart track there by the airport in Waco. And I happened to drive by it and they were racing. And I was like, oh man, I got to see this. So I drove in and I climbed up in the stands and the first couple of carts came out, you know, zipping around. And 
I was like, this is insane. This is crazy. These guys, they're up on two wheels. My God, you could die doing this. I got to have one. So <laughs> I literally got a job that my parents didn't know I had. I had a Toyota Celica hatchback. Um, the go-kart fit perfectly in the back of the Toyota when the back seats were folded down. It lived in my apartment. Um, I would go to the track. I would take it out of the car, wheel it up to the apartment, stand it on its rear bumper, slide it through the door, and then put it on its cart stand in the middle of the living room. And I started race. I raced all around Texas in my go-kart and my Toyota and my parent for a year and a half before my parents eventually found it out. So, um, and again, all I wanted to do was just racing the SCCA. I just wanted to be a club racer, but you know, the, the hook was firmly set and I was done. It was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go racing. And the guy, my best friend's dad said, when I graduated, you know, um, tell you what, if your parents will send you to a three-day racing school, like a Skip Barber or Jim Russell at the time, or Bob Bondurant, I'll let you drive my race car in an SCCA school so you can get your license. Um, and he did that. And it was kind of off to the races. The biggest problem was about, when was it? It was nine months into my SCCA club racing career. My father had a heart attack at the hunting lease in South Texas and fell over dead. So I just kind of thought, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And I didn't have anybody to kick me in the butt and tell me I couldn't. And I was dumb enough to believe I could. And I sold basically everything I owned and much to my mother's chagrin, you know, I headed out and started a professional racing career. And the reason I say I'm one in a million is because I should have never made it. Statistically speaking, I should have never made it. Um, there are a lot of guys that were better race car drivers than me. And that's what I, I say to people all the time. This is not a stick and ball sport where talent necessarily gets you there. It's about the breaks and being in the right place at the right time. It's about understanding that it's a sport, but it's a business. And, you know, when you head into it in the beginning, you think of it in these romantic, idyllic terms of, I just, if I just win races, somebody will hire me. And for some reason, I ended up in the right place in the right time and met the right people and had opportunities to do things that I never dreamt that I would have the opportunity to do back in the very beginning when it all started out. I know that was a really long answer to a really short oh, no, question, <laughs> but that's it. And, you know, that's how I got to do the things that I have been so fortunate to do. And, um, you know, I, it's like I said, I know people who I raced with that probably had more natural talent, but for one reason or another, never found the right people, never found the right supporters, were never able to get the business side of it sorted. And consequently, um, they didn't end up with the same opportunities that I had. And, you know, it's, it's sad, but it's as bad as it sounds, it's, that's the way this business works. So. Well, there you yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say that uh, that's that's uh, about as good an example we've heard as far as you know having the resolve to do it, and then yeah. just and then just going through and not only following your dreams, but um, 
being wise enough to make the choices that, that kept perpetuating your career. Well, and wise and my name are two <laughs> words that rarely go together in the same sentence. But um, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, it was, it was different because I, I didn't have that passion my entire life. I was, I looked at everything, every step that I was fortunate enough to get to take that next step. I looked at it as a blessing. I didn't look at, at it like it was owed to me. I looked at it with awe. And, uh, you know, I remember being in Waco, Texas in a go-kart shop and they had somebody, they also stored some stuff for some drag racers in town and they had an IndyCar show car in the shop. And I said to the guy who was building my engine, who worked there, I said, oh my God, is that an IndyCar? It looks so much smaller than I thought it would be. He's like, yeah. And I said, can I sit in it? And he goes, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I, I I thought standing there in that go-kart shop in 1980 or 81, whatever it was, that that was probably the only opportunity I would ever have to sit in an IndyCar. I had no even dreams about sitting in an Indy car. I wanted to drive my go-kart and then a Formula Ford in the SCCA. So for me, literally every opportunity I got was a blessing. And I know for a lot of other people, um, there are people in this sport that when they didn't get opportunities, they were bitter because they had worked so hard. Mm -hmm. And why Mm -hmm. am I not getting this? And so on and so forth. And it's like, because it's not fair, Um, you know, and... I don't know. It's somebody asked me at Daytona, um, how good are are the champions? How good are the guys, the Scott Dixons of the world? Let's say, you know, how, how good are were the Sinas and and Schumacher and Hamilton and all of these guys picking Jimmy Johnston? And I said, <laughs> they're really good. It's that way in it's that way in every sport. They're almost on a freakish level, you know. Um, I was never going to be that person. I was never going to be an IndyCar champion ever. I mean, and I, I, and maybe I wasn't because I would look in the mirror and say I don't have that ability because I didn't. Um, you know, you can lie to yourself as easily as you can speak the truth to yourself. Probably easier, um, but I, I could. I could hold my own and I could do okay. I told somebody that, yeah, I probably could have been a top five championship driver with a little more time and the right and the right team, but I was never going to win. You know, maybe I would have collected a, a couple of wins and races along the way. I was I was that player on the team that could do everything and could do it okay, but I wasn't a standout. I wasn't an Aaron Judge. I wasn't a Hank Aaron. I wasn't one of those guys in baseball. Um, I just wasn't. And to the guys that are up front week in and week out, uh, um, they're freakish. I mean, I know that sounds crazy to say, but they're freakishly good. And if you just watch onboard cameras, you know, I mean, I, I love to watch onboard cameras and I, and probably because I, I know what the feeling is in the car, you know, I can relate to the onboard camera easier than and more completely than somebody who's never driven a race car right so I I can just sit there and see the little things and admire the little things that those people do that maybe I couldn't have and you know when you're talking about 
an IndyCar at the Speedway or going through turn one at Mid-Ohio or turn one at Road America or whatever, I mean, pick a corner that's kind of daunting. It's even the guys in the middle of the pack are really good. I always laughed when I ran in cart in the early 90s. With year old equipment, your goal was to qualify somewhere between 13th and 15th. It just was. I mean, you weren't going to be better than 13th. You just weren't, unless somebody had a really bad day, popped an engine and qualifying before they got a lap in or something like that. It was current and then it was year old stuff. And if you could, you wanted to be on the pole of the year old stuff. Now you could race mm-hmm. your way into the top 10 because at the time with the engine wars and stuff like that, everybody boosted up for qualifying except the year old guys, you know, and then in the race, you, they would have to go back down. I say boosted up. They, you know, run more RPM and stuff like that. The boost was set, but um, they, they would school them up. And so they would get more performance. So you were never going to be with those guys, never. But in the race, when they had to lower the RPM back to live, to get the engine to live for the length of race, you could race with them. And that, and so the racing side of it was fun, but still you had to be realistic about where you would be. If you were within a second and a half to two seconds of the pole, you were 13th to 15th and you did a really good job. What's the difference between first and last on an IndyCar grid on a road course today? <laughs> it's not a second and a half or two seconds. No, It's less than that. So right. even the guys... Even the guys that are, quote, mid-pack are good. And a lot of times you look at really talented drivers in mid-pack. That's just how, how close it is these days with the cars that they run. But, uh, they, but the guys up front are, yeah, they're freakishly good. So consistently freakishly good. <laughs> oh, no, no, absolutely. So, you know, you talk a little bit about, um, you know, never really thinking you would have a shot in IndyCar. So you make it, you know, or cart at that point, sorry. So you make it a cart and, um, you know, a question I ask a lot of drivers is, do you, did you have like a welcome to the big leagues moment? Like something that happened, um, for example, like Jimmy Kai, you know, he talked about his first race, he was driving in the pits and he looked up and saw, you know, like pit board of Ari Lyon Dyke, you know, a lot of his heroes that, you know, he grew up watching and it was just surreal to him. And I'm guessing, you know, since you never thought you would have ever made it IndyCar, um, you know, getting to race against someone like Mario Andretti um, would probably feel pretty surreal to you. Oh, it was. I mean, my first IndyCar race, my first kart race was 1992 at the Long Beach Grand Prix. And I had mm-hmm. run at Long Beach in Atlantic. I finished second in 1990 in the Atlantic race there. And I don't think I had a very stellar Indy Lights race in 91. I don't remember. So it must not have been very good. <laughs> um, but um, that was my first IndyCar race. and. I mean, we had a lot to do. We we ran um, the year-old True Sports chassis with the Judd power plant. And it was a bit of a maintenance struggle. We, we split a gearbox case in half in, like, I think the first practice session. And they had to fly another one in from Columbus um, overnight. And so we didn't run a lot on Friday. And then on Saturday, we got out there more. And But, you know... We, we did the right thing. We ran on a track that we knew, uh, although it probably wasn't a good thing to run on a street course, although I did manage to keep it off the walls. But hmm. um, but that moment that you were asking about was the driver's briefing. It was a driver's meeting, you know, and it was in the in the um, aquarium building that's there down. It, it's, it's still in the same room that I think it always was, but 
you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, there's Mario Andretti. There's Michael Andretti. Uh, there's Rick Mears. There's, there's Emerson Fittipaldi. There's Alan Sir Jr. There's, I mean, and look back at 1992 and run down the list of people that were there. It was all inspiring. And then Mario, Wally Dallenbach was, you know, the race director, chief steward, and um, he's, he's leading the meeting. And, you know, just, they had such great relationships. The, the drivers had been there and Wally had such great relationships. And Mario comes in and, and Wally starts the meeting and uh, Mario goes, and, and I, I'll try his accent, but it's going to be horrible. But anyway, Mario <laughs> goes, ah, yeah. you know, Wally, uh, why, why do we do the driver's briefing here? You know, I had to come past all these people on my, on my scooter and they want my autograph and it just, you know, it, it just takes so much time. And I'm like, nobody asked me for my autograph. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm sitting there thinking I got in without a problem, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh, Mario. Um, but you know, just that, that was the moment, you know, sitting in that driver briefing going, being on the racetrack was one thing, but being in the room, with all of those people, Bobby Rahal, who at the time, you know, when you got your cart license, you had to go do a two-day rookie test. Johnny Rutherford went with us or met us down in Sebring and spent two days watching me drive an IndyCar to sign off so that you could get a license. And then you had to have two current IndyCar drivers sign off underneath whoever witnessed the test saying they are willing to be on the racetrack with you. That doesn't happen anymore. But at the time, that's what it took to get on the racetrack. And so I'm like, there's Bobby Rahal. I I was living in Columbus, Ohio, and I still am. But, you know, I went over to Bobby's office and he's like, okay, yeah, I'll sign it. You know, be good, be safe. You'll you'll do fine kind of thing. And I'm like, freaking Bobby Rahal signed signed my license. (laughs) I can't remember who the the second person was, but, um, you know, it was just a unbelievably cool time to be in card and to sit there in that room with those drivers it was just i mean i was kind of gobstruck you know it was just it was awesome absolutely awesome yeah the amount of talent that was in cart at that time yeah wow yeah i picked a really bad time to be there and then uh, you know like some I mean, guy named you know, Nigel legends, came in. I mean, and, we're, I mean, we're talking about legends, uh, you know, legend oh, after legend after legend. Yeah. You know, and you, you talk about 94, which is the only year that I, I attempted and ran the 500. Um, Rick Mears did rookie orientation that year. And he sat oh, wow. in the right front seat of a car with you and drove you and let you drive him around the speedway while he said, all right, turn there, turn there, turn there. And I'm like, I'm, freaking driving Rick Mears around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I mean, it's just, it was, it was an awesome, awesome time. I mean, and it's not that it's not now and I'm old and live in the past to do all those things that old people do, I guess. But, um, you know, I look at it and I go, find me a better time. Find me a better time. Right now it's pretty good. I'll tell you. Um, And I'm glad to see that. I think it's, gotten back to um kind of where we were you know in the early 90s when it was so good um and and it's great to see i I will admit there was a 
period of years, I didn't watch much IndyCar racing. Um, it just didn't interest me. But now um, you've got some personalities and the racing is incredibly tight. And, you know, it's, it's great fun to watch. Well, you have some, I, I mean, you know, you got one of the best ever in Scott Dixon, you know, oh, New Garden yeah. and, and um, young guys like Pato. And I mean, I obviously could go on and on and on. Scott McLaughlin and along with Will Power, who's another legend of the sport. Yeah. And uh, Little Herda. It, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it, it's a great time. Great not it's a great time personality wise and driver wise for for the for IndyCar. That's for sure. Well and I and I think that the the drivers and the racing that's there is great, but from a personality standpoint, there are personalities in the paddock. Right. Again, that 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 make it interesting, that make it worthwhile. And with and you you have to have a personality now. You just mm -hmm. have to. You have yeah. to care about the social networking and social media. And you have to care about that. Your sponsors demand that you do. And the sport kind of demands that you do, you know? And I think that's the thing that so many of these guys, really all of them have done so well with is recognizing that side of it. It's not just about driving the car anymore. It's so much more than that. And, you know, there are some people that go, well, that sucks. It should all be about driving the car. And it's like, mm, no, no. Well, I would, I would say that, um, you, with this, you know, as you mentioned, social media and all that, I, I feel like you have to be, um, I mean, more than any time in, in a long time, you have to be who you are because people Absolutely. can, people can sense if you're not who you are. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I, th I really think that's the thing. And I, and I do believe that's what you, I mean, obviously you're alluding to, and that's what we're seeing. And we see it in the, in the Indy next group and we did in Indy pro. Um, so, I mean, they're coming along. Um, people aren't afraid to be who they, who they are, you know, there for a long time, everybody was worried about, being, you know, afraid of being themselves, I think, because they didn't want to yeah. say the wrong thing. They didn't want to do the wrong thing. Well, that and, certainly uh, exists now too, right? <laughs> well, yeah, no, it does just in a different way. Right? Yeah. No, no I but agree. You're, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, remember when, and he is real, but remember years ago when everybody was like, oh, Elio is just a big fake. You right. know, that, that, that's all a show. And it's like, that's not a show. You can bump into him in the race shop or something like that when there's no audience around. And that's Alio. I mean, it, that's just him. He is that outgoing, that gregarious, that just high strong. You know, you talk to Mike Shank about him and, and he's like, oh, yeah, no, that's that's him. <laughs> you know, right. it, it's real easy to go. No, that's not that's not him. But it, it is. And I think other people have realized, too, that you want people to know who you are, right? I mean, right. anymore, you want people to know who you are and recognize you and act on whether they like you or not, you know, be somebody that people don't like. That's okay, right? In fact, Dale Earnhardt Sr. made, 
a great career out of not being liked right. by a lot of people. Um, and I, well, I think I mean, you're right, though. I, I think people tiptoed around it for a long time. And now it's like, no, be yourself and sell yourself. Right. I agree. I, I, I like you think like somebody like Juan Montoya, whether you like him or don't <laughs> like him, he is who he is. And he is unapologetic yeah. about it. Yeah, and, and, and that's he doesn't actually care. Makes me, yeah, and that's what makes me like him because yeah, he'll ju- he'll just he won't go along with anybody's like kind of dancing around things. He'll just go right to it. Oh no, yeah, <laughs> I've run into that professionally, you know, <laughs> and sure. not that not that Juan's a, a pain to deal with by any stretch of the imagination, but you'd better be prepared when you go talk to him because he's got things to do. And if he's unhappy that you're taking too much time, you will know it. And it's, you know, it's his time. And when you deal with these guys at the racetrack, it is their time and it is complicated. And you do have to be respectful of that. And Juan is not concerned at all about your feelings or anybody else's feelings (laughs) when you talk to him in an interview. You know, He, he has no qualms about calling somebody out, as we all know, on the racetrack that he thinks has done something wrong or stupid or whatever. And, and you know what? To some extent, he certainly earned the right to do oh, that. Absolutely. You know, he, a little bit of talent there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just a little bit. Scott actually had a cat named Juan Pablo. And yeah. he, he was pretty pretty similar, right? He was, uh, it's the only cat I ever had a business, only animal I've ever owned I just had a business relationship with. <laughs> we just, he was just, uh, <laughs> I'm scared he, he, to dig into that one too far. He just did what he did. I did what I did. I brought home the food, took care of him. He would occasionally say thank you. But... Occasionally, yes. Um, How funny. Yeah, it, it's funny. Yeah, his, his personality, uh, oddly, I don't know one, but I got a feeling it'd be somewhat similar. <laughs> uh, and, and And let me make this abundantly clear, because... Obviously, we didn't in a broadcast um, a few years ago when he was running with Roger and the Acura. We were talking about Juan being mad. Calvin Fish and I were doing the broadcast. We were talking about Juan being upset at somebody. Something had happened, and you know he was in the car. And I was like, man, you don't want to ticked off Juan Montoya behind you. And you know, we kind of chuckled about that. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, everybody knows that Juan's kind of a fiery character, right? I mean, <laughs> it, 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 I, it's, I didn't think that would be, and I certainly didn't say, you know, he's a jerk for having a personality, you know? Right. But a family member took offense to that. <laughs> and, was like, <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. I admire him and respect him immensely. I'm not saying he's a jerk or I'm just saying he's a warrior, right? I mean, and you don't right. want to, you don't want to tick him off. And if you go by the mantra of drive people the way you want to be drive driven, if you drove JPM dirty, well, guess what? That's right. <laughs> it's going to come back. You know, and so that's all we were saying. So I just want to make sure that everybody knows that I have a massive amount of respect for him and not making fun of him by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I, when I saw, I went, I, when I saw him win the 500 uh, that first time in such a dominating fashion, I thought to myself, this, 
this may be the greatest race car driver I'm ever going to watch in my lifetime. And I'd seen a lot of great race car drivers. You know, I'm 53, but I grew up in the sport. So I was lucky enough to see Rick. And, you know, I actually got a chance to watch AJ run a little dirt, Mario run a little dirt. Oh, wow. You know, as a little kid. And uh, so, you know, I, I just thought Montoya was just something really special. I still do. I I have a great admiration for his abilities. And it's it's funny you talk to Mike Hall at Ganassi, and he talks about what a natural Juan was. He was he said you know in the beginning, and I, I have no idea you know what he's like now, but he said you know in the beginning working with Juan, it was it could be frustrating at times because he just drove it, mm-hmm. right? He didn't fix it. He just right. drove it. And they're like, well, what do you need? Well, hang on a second. Give me a lap. Okay, I got it. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> what do you need? What we can, what can we do to make it better? You know, he he's so good at just adjusting to what the car needs. Mike was talking about being in an oval somewhere where they came in, did a pit stop, and went out, and his times were just abysmal after the stop, and he was dropping back in the race, and you know they're on the radio going. Juan, what's up? What's wrong with the car? Give me a minute. You know, he had run two, three, four laps. They were like, give, he's like, give me a minute. And the next lap was quicker. The next lap was quicker. And like five or six laps in, he's right back down to where he had been when the car was, quote, good. But he made it good. He didn't make it good by making adjustments and this, that, and the other. He made it good or made it work by driving it in a completely different way in a diff- completely different place. And on an oval, that's that's Herculean. I mean, because I always tell, you know, young drivers on an oval, and you know this, I mean, being the race fan that you are, on an oval, it's the car. I mean, certainly at the speed, certainly at the speedway, if the car's not going to do it, you can't pitch it, catch it, play with it, this, that, and the other, like you can on a street circuit or a road course, because it'll kill you. I mean, the car has to be right. And granted, when you've got a car that's right with somebody who's really good in it, it's magical, but... You know, to to take a car, it wasn't at the speedway, so it must have been a shorter oval. But and you can you can manhandle them a little bit more on a short oval. But um, Mike said he was just amazed. You're sitting there watching him. He's running the car in a completely different place, but turning the same lap times because that's what the car needed. Juan didn't care what Juan needed. Juan just drove the car the way it needed to be driven. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. mega talent. Yeah, I mean that's that's rare air, right? Yeah. Oh well, that's what I was saying in the beginning. The great ones, right? It is. You know, it's it's not the guy that gets a hold of the hundred mile an hour fastball and hits one home run. It's the guy that does it every single time he steps up to the plate, or every third time he steps up to the plate in good baseball number terms. But um, yeah, it's those are the guys that are special, and. You know, the thing that's crazy about it is probably, I guess, what I just said. It's it's the consistency of doing the special things. You know, right. the, quote, good race car drivers, not the great ones. Good ones do special things. They just don't do them as often, right? The exactly. great ones just do it all the time, you know, consistently. So. No, I I, I couldn't agree more. You, you look at someone like Scott Dixon, who... Um, after all these years still makes more fuel than everybody else. 
and they mm-hmm. all have the same technology. They have everything's the same. So and it doesn't and it doesn't matter what right. he's driving. You know, he, right. he slots into a prototype and does the same thing. It's just and I mean, Scott's the guy, and I I say this a lot, and I did a program for the Lucas School of Racing this the week or the two days after the Rolex 24 and I told these young guys the same thing you know and and Scott's Scott's this guy and that is there's confident and there's cocky I'll take confident all day long cocky I don't want to deal with I don't want your attitude and and that's that's Scott right he's confident Mm -hmm. I've have I seen him angry yeah I've seen him angry but I didn't see him having a temper tantrum like a spoiled child would have I saw him angry because he wanted to be better. I didn't see him cocky. You watch the wins and the championships. He doesn't get out of the car and dance a jig and throw his fists up in the air and say, I'm number one. He gets out of the car and thanks the team and is elated by the success that they're all having together. And, and that's confident. That's not cocky. And with all the success, as you were saying, with all the success that he's had, um, and will continue to have really kind of as long as he wants to keep driving, I guess. It's just, those are the things that are special. Again, you know, those guys. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I contend that in any sport, the great ones, uh, career is probably done five years before every, anybody else knows it. Oh yeah. Like they know what, they know the changes they're having to make, but other people don't. Yep. And and they and that's a great point. And they make them quietly. Right. That's right. right. Not but they they find a way to adjust and get it done. And right. That's the thing that I, that's yeah, it's one of the other things that makes them special. So talking a little bit about so we're obviously talking about the Indy five hundred and your first and you're only Indy five hundred nineteen ninety four. Um, but you know, obviously I'm sure Indy five hundred was something you were very familiar with you watched you knew it was a big deal but kind of what to kind of take us through that month and kind of what your impression of actually getting to experience it um really was for you there there are two racetracks in the world that give me goosebumps um when i walk into the pit lane and i know mr france is going to hate me for this but um <laughs> it's the indianapolis motor speedway and um circuit de la sarth 20 you know where they run le mans um mm-hmm. And it's, it sounds, you know, maybe it sounds corny. I don't know. But I say this to everybody. It's like you walk into those two places and you almost literally feel the spirit and the ghosts of the people who've been there, you know, and that have literally given everything. I remember a few years ago when somebody was trying to, you know, reason that, less than 33 starters at Indy wasn't a big deal. And I'm sitting there thinking it is a big deal. Yep. That's the, that's the freaking number. I know people who have died trying to be one of 33, literally died trying to be one of 33. Don't tell me it's just a number, you know, it's special and it's, and all of that was there. And, but you know, it, it also, it was also a very emotional time for me because I mean, I, I wanted to do well and I thought I could. And, you know, we struggled a little bit. We were with Dale and, you know, Dale, Dale's operation at the time is was nothing 
like Dale's operation is now. And it was nothing like it had been in the years ahead of it. I mean, he was growing by leaps and bounds and, you know, producing better and better cars. And um, they had been running, you know, Buicks for the last several years. This was the first year they had, you know, what I would call a mainstream engine. You know, it was a Ford. It was a year old Lola with a Ford. Um, so the opportunity to be in, be in the show was there. Um, but I woke up in my hotel room one morning and was getting ready to go to the racetrack. And I just happened to turn the news on and the news that came on, it was on every news station around and probably in the world was that Ayrton Senna had just died. Mm. And I'm thinking, hang on a second. If the best race car driver in the world, certainly at the time, and maybe, you know, depends on who you are and what you like to believe. But if Ayrton Senna just died in a race car, what the hell am I doing driving a car at 230 miles an hour around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? Right. You know, so it was it was emotional because Senna was gone. It was a, a wake-up call that, you know, we all put our suit on and our helmet on. And I would I would imagine the same way to this day, but you know, you, you put your suit and helmet on and and the thought of something bad happen happening just goes away for some reason. It's like Nomex makes that thought go away. I won't tell you that I've never been scared in a race car. And I won't tell you that I was never scared at Indianapolis, but you know, I always tell young kids too. If you, if a race car driver tells you he's never been scared in a race car, he's either a liar or a fool. You know, I mean, at some point in time, you're going to scare yourself in a race car. You can't drive with fear or worry but a little healthy respect, you know, is probably a good thing. And the idea that Senna had been killed was, was really, you know, a huge, huge deal from a wake-up call perspective because the great was gone and you were doing the same kind of thing. And it just kind of added, I don't know, it was, it just kind of added a different kind of tone to the whole thing um, all month long. And then, you know, there was, you know, my, my mom and my little sister didn't come to the race. My little sister was pregnant at the time and about to deliver. So she couldn't be at the racetrack and my mom stayed at home with her, but my brother and my older sister and, and their spouses came. And I mean, it was, you know, and then there's the, the pressure that you put on yourself of, Hey, you need to do a good job for you. Then there's the pressure you put on yourself of, I need to do a good job for these people who came to watch. I need to do a good job for the people who have sponsored me and supported me and gotten me here. Um, but I'll also tell you, there was the very real thought in my mind. I was 34 years old. There's a re very real thought in my mind of this. I mean, there's better than a 50-50 shot that this is it. You're not going to get to do this again, you know? And so it, all of that kind of goes through your mind. Um, and I remember there's there are parts of the month that I don't remember very well at all. And other parts that I remember clearly, I clearly remember the start of the race. Um, I started 21st. So on the seventh row, Robbie Gordon was beside me. <laughs> I think, I think Guerrero may have been back there, you know, I mean, so there were there were good race car drivers around me and i remember coming out of turn four and you couldn't breathe remember we ran methanol at the time and the amount you know the 
engines. You, you didn't have cockpit adjustable engine maps and so on and so forth. And so everybody's loaded up and the engines are real rich. And if you remember being around Indy cars back in the day when that fuel was, you know, I mean, it just burns your nose to be around it, to, to breathe the fumes of it. Let me tell you, when you come out of there and there are 18 cars in front of you that have gone to full <laughs> chat and the engines were loaded up and it dumps that exhaust out, it was just hanging on the front straight away. And it was like hard to breathe until you got out of turn two, just as choking methanol exhaust. But, um, you know, that exhaust smell to me is, I'm going to bring up my Texas roots um, and, and my age, obviously. We hunted all the time when I was a kid. I mean, we hunted everything, ducks, geese, dove, quail, deer, pigs, you name it. But I remember as a little kid, our shotgun shells were made of paper. And those mm. paper shotgun shells, even the first, plastic shotgun shells had cork base wads down at the bottom of the shotgun shell. And I can remember whenever I would shoot um, or my dad would shoot, I would pick up that paper shotgun shell and smell it because it just had, I don't know, something about that. It was pungent, but it, but it smelled good. And it's kind of like methanol exhaust. There was just something about it. It burned your nose, it burned your eyes, but there was just kind of a, a magic to it. Um, kind of like two stroke, go-kart fuel you know you'd smell it at a racetrack or you could if you smelled it outside a racetrack you would go oh somebody's burning you know clots or whatever it was that you right. that you mixed at the time because you just knew the smell of it and but i mean like i said it was magic and there was there were highs and lows and um i said to my girlfriend at the time who i eventually married when we walked through gasoline alley out to the track, you know, um, before the race, I just said, look around and enjoy it. You may never see this again, you know? Um, and I vividly remember saying that, and I vividly remember the walk out of gasoline alley and out to the front straightaway. And even when I go back today, I, it's like we were there for the SRO eight hour race in October, um, that ended after darkness. So, you know, it was, it was late, right. You know, and, stood out there on the front straightaway with no one around just standing on the bricks at the Indianapolis motor speedway. And it's just, again, all those spirits, those ghosts, whatever you want to call them, they're there and you feel them. And it's, it, it's not like they're talking to you, but they're there, you know, <laughs> they're just there. And, and literally when I say that the hair on the, my arm stands up, but um, it's a magical place and obviously there a magical event. There is a video of, um, and Scott probably knows what I'm going to bring up, Tony Stewart. Um, he was at the museum and he was talking to Doug Bowles about, um, apparently when, when he ran Indy, he, there were a lot of drivers didn't stay in inside the track, like in the motorhome lot. Um, but he did, I think he, he had got back from Charlotte from doing the double. One of the doubles. Yeah, yeah, it was a double. He came back and he said he, when he got out of the car, like he was just standing out there and he said the whole place, like he just heard all this noise. And it was just so loud. And he was like, I thought I was about to see somebody, but there was no one there. Like, he no was just one talking. There, yeah. It was just yeah. really crazy. Um, and Doug Bull said, obviously, a lot of people say stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I know it, again, it, it, it can sound kind of corny, but it's, it's real. See, and now if Tony Stewart said it, then it's got to be real. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I'm a good course. company now. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, for myself personally, I know for Aaron, he has similar experience. I mean, any driver, any person we've really ever talked to who goes to the Speedway, uh, when you go through the tunnel, pop up in front of the museum, uh, just there's something about it. And I don't yeah. know what it is. I mean, my, I mean, my entire life has been in one way or another tied to that place. I, I don't live mm-hmm. here if it isn't for that place. My dad worked on Indy cars, uh, you know, so our journey in life brought us here, you know, and there's everything I have in my life is essentially due to one place. Yeah. I mean, it, it's magical. And, you know, like I said, Lamar is, is the same to me. It, it's, you just know the history and there's, there's something about, you know, we're so spoiled in this country. Um, you go to the town of Lamar, you know, where you're probably staying when you're there. And, um, you know, you walk down these narrow streets that are the way that they were in the forties when world war II was going on. And you see the scars literally to this day of bullet holes in, in these big stone buildings and stuff. And you think about that history that's there. And then you think about the race and, First time I ever went, David Hobbs was with us and we went driving in and he goes, oh, this is this is White House. And I went, what do you mean this is White House? And he goes, that street we just crossed, that, that's White House. That's White House Bend. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That, I mean, that, that can't be. It's like a narrow two-lane road with a giant <laughs> crown in it and a little white house. Oh, my God, it is White House. And I'm like, I can't imagine that day. But he goes, yeah, imagine it in a GT40 or a 917 Porsche at 200 miles an hour in the nighttime, you know? And I'm like, you guys were nuts. He, and as he, as he said, we, we didn't know any better. I mean, you, you think about that through all the historical cars and you look at some of these cars that people drove and you think, my God, they were crazy. Well, they didn't know any better. And Lamal was the same way. You think about the guys who went there and drove these cars that you look at today and go, I would never get in that. Well, to them, it was the latest and greatest and, you know, the best car that you could be in. Why wouldn't, what do you mean you wouldn't drive it? You know, and it's just the history that's there. And when you, like I said, I kind of won't say I'm a World War II buff, but, um, you know, it was a special time in, in the place of the world and to kind of be in those areas where a lot of that stuff went down. And you think, I mean, it was a, wasn't that long ago. They found what, it was like a two or 300 pound bomb. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when they were um, doing, they were doing a new building site, um, <laughs> you know, there's still, there's still part of that there. Right. So, um, like I said, that history is is pretty special. So after um, kind of, you know, you wrap up your racing career, like how did you get involved in the broadcasting? Um, obviously, I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse, right? Maybe I get it from my dad since he was an attorney and a litigator. Um, so I did... When I, the last IndyCar season I ran uh, uh, with any regular regularity, 
1993, and I did the 500 and one other race in 94. Then I, I kind of, I was late, but I thought, well, maybe I should look at sports cars. So um, I ran Trans Am in 95 and ran with Greg Pickett's team, um, which was, you know, the whole Pickett family is just a hoot to be around, but um, ran with them, ran Camaros. And um, we were doing the race at, well, let me back up for a second. When I, after I won the Atlantic Championship in 1990, uh, the group that was televising the Atlantic races asked if I wanted to do color commentary for the Atlantic races in 91. And since they didn't really conflict with any of my Indy Light stuff, I said, sure. So that was my first taste of television was doing color commentary. I think I did it. I think I only did it for a year because I really wanted to concentrate on the IndyCar stuff. I may have done it for two, but um, and then I was out of it for a couple of years. And when I was doing Trans Am, we were at Road America and it was a different production company doing the races then. Um, guy named John Mullen, who was one of the originators behind um, American Sports Cavalcade and all that kind of stuff. And just a super guy. I mean, a dear friend and one of the best producers in motorsports, bar none. But he grabbed five drivers and took us out to five different corners and he, for the show. He didn't want to do the same old boring track map. He wanted to take drivers out to corners and let the drivers explain, you know, the corner. And he would just do them in succession. He had somebody in turn one, somebody in turn five, somebody in eight. I think he had somebody in the carousel, maybe, um, you know, in different places around the racetrack. And then he took those narratives and put them together and did the track map with him for the broadcast. And after we did it, he goes, wow, you can actually talk. <laughs> like, don't give, you know, race car drivers a bad rap, John, you know, yeah, a lot of us can talk. He goes, no, you, you did really good. You seem comfortable. And I said, well, you know, I've done a little bit of television. He goes, well, would you like to do some more? It turned out he was doing the Atlantic broadcast from that point on and was like, would you be interested in doing some of the Atlantic stuff? And I'm like, Sure. So really, I, I owe it to John Mullen because John is the one who got me back into doing television on a regular basis. And I give him credit because he was very vocal about what you did right and what you did wrong. Um, that offends some people to me. I can't fix it if I don't know about it. You know, so our personalities went pretty well together, even when he would yell at me. And I've got three hours worth of funny stories about John Mullen doing television. But, um, you know, we, we got along fabulously because of that. Um, I wanted to learn and he wanted to do good television. And then Speed Vision, you know, was getting going in the day. And then uh, David Lee, who was a producer at Speed Vision at the time, called one day and said, hey, are you interested in doing the runoffs for Speed Vision? And then did the runoffs and just, you know, one thing kind of led to another. And then, then there was this family of us at, at Speed Vision that went on to Speed, that went on to Fox. And that was Lee Diffie and Calvin Fish, Chris Neville and Dorsey Schrader and myself were kind of this core. Um, Guy Hobbs was in there for a while, but there was this 
core group of us that, um, I mean, we were so incredibly lucky because not only were we working and making a living doing television, we all became incredibly close friends to this day. And obviously Calvin and Lee, you know, work for NBC um, where I do my stuff now and still great friends. And, you know, it's, it's a long way away from the heart of Texas cart club in Waco, Texas, where it all started. And from a guy who thought that he would probably be a businessman or something like that, and just enjoy going to the races as either a club racer on the weekends or as a fan sitting in the stands. So when I say I'm one in a million, um, I am, I'm one in a million. I'm, I won the lottery. Uh, I got, yeah. had opportunities to do all these things and I'm fortunate I still get to do them. And I think when you look at just Indy 500 alone, I mean, you look at the number of people who race in the Indy 500, the number is pretty low. And I mean, you know, very low. And the, you know, the, yeah. the drivers that are still alive that, you know, racing the 500, it's extremely low. And think about all the, I mean, millions of kids, right. The dream of driving in the Indy 500. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, <laughs> and it's just, it's still just magical. It, and I still have to kind of slap myself is it Daytona for the Rolex? And I was walking out of the media center and um, was going to head back um, to where our trailers were, our office trailers were to do some work. And I went walking in to the, to the garage area um, that's in the back, the higher numbered garages mm -hmm. and walking through the gate was Roger Penske and his son. And I'm like, Oh man, there's Roger. And to this day, I, I'm still like, Oh, there's Roger. <laughs> And it always floors me when Roger Penske says, hey, Brian, how's it going? <laughs> and I'm like, why does Roger Penske know my name? You know, I mean, it's just it's and he's just an absolutely freaking amazing human being. But, um, it, you know, those are the kind of moments where you just kind of have to slap yourself and you just go, I'm one lucky guy. I really am. I'm not lucky that Roger Penske knows my name. I'm lucky that. I get to be someplace around people like that, that you admired so much when, before you ever thought you would have an opportunity to do it. And um, not only have you done it, but you, you know, you've done it okay. Because Roger Penske says hello and calls you by name. So <laughs> funny, the metrics you use to measure things by, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. Um, what what would you say is your biggest piece of advice for any young, you know, driver that wants to make it, wants to drive in the Indy 500? Um, you have to be the complete package. You just have to anymore. Uh, it's a bit, I mean, again, it, it literally and figuratively takes money to make the wheels go around. You have to be a business person. You just do. Um, I think you need to have the mindset of I need to find the corporate backing to make this work and not rely on, Hey, I just need to win races and I'll get picked up. Um, there's, there's not much racing in the world where that exists anymore. Yes. It happens a little bit here and there. Um, but it's usually because somebody believed in you and helped you along the way. And because of that, you need to be prepared to understand business. You need to represent you know, you, I tell young guys in media training this, you may think it's funny at 15 years old, 
to walk downstairs, or you may not even think about walking downstairs and kind of the off color t-shirt that you've got on that has the colorful saying on the back of it that would make your mom blush. And you don't think about it. You go walking down into the lobby to eat breakfast and you don't pay any attention to the woman that's sitting there at the table, kind of looking at you like, Oh my God, I can't believe someone would wear that. And you think nothing about it until you're standing there in your paddock the next day or later that day. And some guy comes walking up and your team owner or your business person is so excited to introduce you to these people because they are potentially your ticket and you look up and oh my god it's her and she looks up and looks at you and goes oh my god it's him you know it's like you don't you don't get a do-over every impression you make is an impression the first impression it's real and it's it's got to be good and you have to understand the business side of it. You have to understand the B2B side of business and how it gets done in the paddock. And you've got to be willing to be a part of it. You know, the work on the racetrack, the driving the car, that's the fun part. And it's, I don't know, you know, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 15%. The other part is being in a gym and being physically fit. Um, continuing to, I think you need to continue to read and study and immerse yourself in something so that, mentally you're tough and you keep going you know i was reading about um ramon grosjean who uh just got his pilot's license and bought a a, mm -hmm. a plane and he did that and i admire him i'm i'm a pilot too but it took me much longer i think he started last fall and he's at zero hours and he's now a multi-engine ifr certified pilot he also has the wherewithal to buy the airplane and, and, and afford the training. But the point is he immersed himself in something. And, and that's what you do as a driver. You immerse yourself in the driving, but you've got to find other things so that your mind is multifaceted and that you look at things from different angles and, you know, you don't become complacent. You look at the guys who've been around for a long time. I have no idea what Scott Dixon's stock portfolio looks like. But I'm going to imagine that there's some stuff in there that he's interested in. I'm going to imagine that he may own a couple of businesses. I don't know. Or co-own a couple of businesses. Things that maybe when he stops driving, he'll have an opportunity to be involved in. You know, he may be in a, a financial situation where, whoops, dog. He may be in a financial situation where he doesn't need to find something else to do when he stops driving. But you know, other drivers aren't as fortunate. They stopped driving long before they intended to, and there needs to be something else there. And if you immersed yourself in the business side of motorsport, there may be something business-wise that keeps you in the sport, but not as a driver, you know? So um, find other things and, and be complete, you know? But really, that's not racing specific. That's that's the real yeah. world anyway. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you hear the stories, uh, you know, of, um, Mr. Hendrick, like they say that any guy that works for him, any, you know, any person that works for him, uh, can go and talk to him, asking business questions, ask him any questions at any time. Um, and you've heard some of the same things about Roger. And right. I feel like if you're a driver, I mean, 
you kind of got to do that, right? You have I to. Mean, you got you got to. I mean, in what other way? What other time in your life are you going to be around people? Who yeah, are you've got the so wildly successful. You know, yeah, the brightest, most successful people right there that you can talk to and talk to them about other things other than the race car. You know, right. you've got this world of information that's there, but it's no different than a football player. You know, you're you're one hit away from ending your career one game in. You know, there has to be more. You have to make sure that you're complete. And um, yeah, I I mean, it's just, it's so easy to focus on the fun. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, the guys work out harder today than, than I did. But I, you know, I was in the gym five days a week. Two and a half, three hours a day. You know, I mean, you had to. I, I was joking about opening a bottle of wine earlier but it's like i didn't drink alcohol from the time from two weeks before the first race until the season was over i didn't drink alcohol at all period you know and and so it was like you dedicate yourself to making yourself better and doing the things that you need to do to make it work and some of them aren't fun you know i've got a 19 and a 22 year old son who are in college and they're like yeah this this sucks. I don't understand why I have to do this class. You know, and I'm like, right. you have to do it because it, the curriculum says you have to do it. You don't make the curriculum. You're going to have to do things in your work life that your boss tells you to do that you don't think are worthwhile. But guess what? Or in life in employed, general. Right. Yeah, it's life in general. Exactly. If you want to stay employed, you better do them. So right. it's, it's like there are those things in preparing for racing that you have to do as well. The workouts, the diet, the the reading, the studying, all of that stuff. And a lot of it doesn't have anything to do with driving a racer. But if you want to be successful, you better be complete. Absolutely. Well, I, I don't have anything else. Do you have anything else, Scott? I don't. Uh, it's been, uh, I mean, I've really enjoyed this. And uh, uh, thank you so much for your time. And, oh, and we hope to, my pleasure. Hope to, hope to have you on again sometime. And Aaron, are you going to give him an open in- invitation <clears throat> for for your go karting? Oh yeah! If oh you're God! If you're ever in Indianapolis, we actually do. A, we have a partnership with a local indoor go karting place, um, and we've been racing some former drivers and current drivers. Nothing so. good can come from that. It's, a it's been fun. good. <laughs> it's been good so far. We've Jimmy Kite is absolutely hooked too. We've had Donnie Beachler. <laughs> That's like taking an alcoholic back into a bar, you know, that, <laughs> don't, don't invite me to do things like that. You guys have been awesome. I, I appreciate it. I had a ball and um, yeah, grab me at a racetrack the next time you see me or give me a call sometime and, and we'll chat, but I'm going to go finish my spaghetti and yep. enjoyed it. Now you said earlier, you're going to, you're going to send Aaron some of that sauce, right? Is that, <laughs> was that the deal with me? I don't I think, think you heard me a minute on. ago when I said I have a 19 and a 22 year old in my house. <laughs> there will be no sauce left. Trust me. Oh, man. It was an absolute uh, pleasure, Brian. Yep. Brian, there is Thank one you. question I did. I, there was something I forgot. You know, you you've kind of joked around a little bit about talking about these other guys with their with all their talents and that. And uh, obviously, you're very talented, or you wouldn't have done the things you did. I now just talking to you. Would you say that would one thing that you were really good at 
was that you understood how to minimize the things you, you knew you weren't good at and maximize the things you knew you were good at? I, I think that's an, that's an excellent point. It's an excellent point. I mean, my, my deal was I wanted to finish races and score points and finish right. as high in championships as I possibly could. I wasn't a risk taker and I wasn't a risk taker because I'll go back to, I didn't come from a racing family. I didn't understand how it worked. I, I was 23 years old when I sat down in a go-kart the first time. So I didn't have a bunch of experience to pull from. Everything was new to me. And the people I watched, um, the Jackie Stewart's, the Bobby Ray Halls, those guys were the guys that I looked to. And I looked at them, not the Jill Villeneuve of the world and that kind of stuff, but the Jackie Stewart, who I always thought was the thinker, um, Lauda, to some extent, who was the thinker, Ray Hall, who certainly was the thinker. He, you know, he didn't look like a race car driver. He was this bespeckled <laughs> guy that was, you know, driving for Red Roofs in, but they were thinkers. And it was like, you can think your way out of a lot of stuff, you know, if you'll right. just focus and 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 that was that was probably my my stronger suit i didn't have the experience so consequently i wasn't as willing to take risks um and i measured my risks very differently which made me more consistent with my finishes you know i i remember just briefly and <laughs> i gotta go but I was doing some truck races for fox and phil parsons and todd bodine were in the booth with me um, and I was just filling in, you know, I think I did four or five races and we, it, it was like two thirds of the way through the season, three quarters of the way through the season. And the championship was, you know, coming to light. And I can't remember who the players were at the time, but I'm like, okay, we're at Atlanta motor speedway. And I keep talking about points, you know, and scoring points and moving on to the next one. And Phil is looking at me <laughs> like I'm out of my mind and, and Todd is going, well, that makes sense, Phil. I mean, you know, if you get zero points for crashing out or, you know, you get whatever that. And finally we're in a break. And I said, so when we come back, do we want to talk about the 86 truck and you know how he's leading the championship, but he's 12th on this restart with five laps to go. How much do you risk? You know, are you really going to go try to win this race? Are you going to be smart, you know, and walk out of here with points? Cause you know, it's going to happen. You know, you know, there's going to be a crash. What do you do? He'll look at me and goes, if you say that one more time, I'm going to punch you in the throat. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's just his different mindset than mine. I was the, right. I was the points guy. I was the let's score points and move on. And he came from, you know, a, a hard nosed racing background of win every freaking race that you can. My right. counterpoint to that would be the ones that you can. Don't right. try crashing or don't crash trying to win a race that you can't win. You know, my friend Dorsey Schrader always used to say, if you've got a third place car and you finish third, you won. If you have a third place car and you finish second, you, you had a really lucky day. And if you had a third place car and you finished fifth, well, you're a wanker and you got some work to do. But, yep. you know, it's just a different mindset and how you approach it. So I, I agree with all that. Yeah, I contend that. Uh, if you're a fast driver without the discipline, if uh, if a steady driver is can stay on them, push them a little bit, they'll he'll give you that spot. Yeah, you just they're, they're fast car race. They're fast race car drivers and good race car drivers. 
That's right. Good race car drivers are fast. Fast ones aren't necessarily good. They end up in the fence a lot. There you so go. You, you got to have the balance. Well, Brian, thank thank you again so much, and um, yeah, I hope I hope that um, spaghetti's good. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to find out. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thank All right, you. guys.